It's time for the Image Doctors Photography Podcast. I'm Jason O'Dell. And I'm Rick Walker. And we're back to talk about all kinds of fun, photographic, creative topics. Um, We have had a little uh, week off because we've been having some travel. So we'll talk a little bit about that. A a week off from recording podcasts. (laughs) You're right, right. I I haven't had a week off from work, that's for sure. That's a good thing. That's a good problem to have. (laughs) Um, How you been, Rick? Good. I did have a week off. That's good. To Hawaii. So that, that wasn't bad. That doesn't suck. You know, that's, yeah. that could be worse. Where'd you go? Big Island. Nice. Yeah. Been there before. Did you, it's uh, always do any, nice. did you do any photography while you're there or just kind of vacation lightweight, mode? Lightweight stuff. Yeah. That's good. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. it, it, we've talked about that before. Like if you try to fit real photography into a family vacation, you might be running into some conflict. It just depends. And it, you know, it depends on, my mood and stuff like that. I, I was fine just doing some more casual stuff. It, it's funny. Um, I still used a real camera, but there you go. Yeah. I, I, I just got back from back to back workshops in Florida for birding Nikon system birding. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, the, you know, I'll tell you the, the systems are getting so specific to settings that it's very hard to, to know every camera and every, every setting. So, what I was doing was just focusing on people using Nikon cameras. And while most people were using Nikon Zs and a lot of Z9s, I was surprised actually how many people had Z9s. You know, it's, it's easier as an instructor to be able to go into some specific things, even with stuff like using Lightroom and stuff like that and dial it in for what you know works with a particular brand of camera. Mm-hmm. So that, that was pretty cool, but it was interesting. I just, a little story. One of my clients was there and it was his first time doing a workshop with me. Really nice guy, but he's, he used to be into, um, doing a lot of city, you know, night cityscape kind of mm-hmm. photography. Sure. And his wife would go out there with him like a trooper and she had no interest at all, but, but went out there with him as he was, you know, and you're setting up for 20 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, how long it takes to set up oh, those yeah. kinds of shots and tripods and stuff like that. And he was like, she was a real trooper. He goes, but I'm not going to keep bringing her out there on stuff like that. Um, Cause that can, that can put a strain on your relationship really fast. Yeah. yeah. As, as, you know, we're not here for relationship advice, but we do know this part. If you're a photographer, it's good to be able to partition out hardcore photography stuff with, from from your vacation and family travel mm-hmm. there's a little room for overlap in the venn diagram but but not a ton right right you know so it, it's a good thing to know um but this week we wanted to kind of catch everybody up on uh our infrared stuff because the last time we when the last time we were here we were talking about heading down to tucson for uh, an infrared master class, which worked really well, I think. Mm-hmm. I thought it went great. We had a good group of clients, and um, we combined shooting with a lot of classroom stuff because there's there's quite a bit of classroom stuff or, or post processing knowledge that's required for infrared photography. Yeah, um, at least if you're trying to get a lot of different creative styles. You, your, your post-processing could be very simple in some respects too. You, you could really easy, easily do like monochrome and call it good. And, th- you know, one of the points of this method that we've kind of cultivated using Lightroom for infrared, some specialized <laughs> secret sauce stuff is that you get a lot more color out of mm-hmm. 
certain conversions. So like 720, which, you know, a lot of people think has very little color in it. You can get a lot of color out of it. Yeah. It just depends on what tools you're using and how you have it configured. I agree. And I want to riff on this for just a minute, mm-hmm. because this is something that I think there's, there's a lot of, I don't want to call it misconception, but you know, we've talked about in the past topics where uh, the information may be out of date or incomplete, or, or you're just using old, old knowledge. And there is a dogma in, uh, there's sort of a dogmatic approach to infrared photography that you cannot use Adobe products to process your raw files. And that's not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. Right. Um, the, it, some of it depends on your camera, but the issue arises from a fundamental nature of the camera raw module. That's the Adobe camera raw that's in bridge and Photoshop or the underlying engine in Lightroom. And it has a fundamental constraint in which the white balance cannot be set cool enough to the blue side mm. to, to properly white balance color infrared images. And so there was this convention of like, well, you can use Lightroom or, or camera, raw, but it, you just have to convert it to monochrome or something. Otherwise, mm. th- so there's a lot of information out there that simply says, if you shoot infrared and you want to do color stuff, You've got to convert it in the manufacturer software, generally speaking, because mm-hmm. it will read the white. And that assumes you have an in-camera white balance set properly. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of assumptions there. Um, and then use Photoshop to do things like channel swapping and you know these color effects and, and mm-hmm. things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that approach. But what's what's incorrect is that you can use ACR and Lightroom. Mm -hmm. And what we taught our clients was how to do that with some specialized profiles and some custom stuff. And so we were able to actually do all of the color work in Lightroom without even going into Photoshop. Yeah. And I don't think people quite understood that, how that was different. What do you think, Rick? Um, I think that's true. I, I think that you know, that advice that you were talking about, about using camera manufacturers software combined with Photoshop. One, it's, it's kind of an old school approach. You know, it, it was what was used a while back and, well, it's and, safe. Are, and it, it, it's a dumbed down answer that is safe. In other words, if someone says that it's like, okay, end of discussion. I don't have to describe any more about what you do. Whereas with what we're talking about, there is some stuff that goes behind it and it's, it took us a while to refine it. So it's not necessarily that simple, but once you have it in place, it's fabulous because it is so easy to use in comparison. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but there is a, well, there is a learning curve. Hence why I think our workshop was helpful it yeah, could be and helpful in the future I'll, I'll explain it a little differently when you use the method that's generally the default method you convert your raw file to a, a rasterized you know rgb format psd tiff whatever mm-hmm. it might be you you convert it in tool a and then everything else happens in photoshop which is tool b 
And while there's nothing wrong with that approach, it does require you knowing a few things about Photoshop and 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 that. Whereas what we were and you teaching, might have a tool C two, which could be Lightroom, you know, yeah. for your normal images. Well, well, right. So so what we were presenting was everything remaining in the raw format, working directly on raw infrared captures to include things like colors and channel swapping, blue sky effect, that kind of stuff without going into a rasterized pixel editor unless you wanted to. And I think the the huge thing about that approach is that it allows you to use your one tool. If you are an Adobe user and not everybody is, but if you are, and that's your tool, shouldn't you get the benefit of using that tool on all of your images, not only your standard traditional visible right. color images, right. but also your infrared images? And for me, that's what's so huge about it. And if I can stay out of Photoshop too, it's nice on top of that. Yeah, and obviously I'm a proponent of that because I did it a long, long, long time ago when it wasn't even documented, mm -hmm. just so I could keep it in one tool. Right. But this is better than what I was doing then by far. Yeah, well, we've we've come to some some discoveries along the way that have allowed us to improve not just setting a custom Lightroom camera profile to set white balance, but also make other adjustments that can tone down hot spots and the appearance of, you know, mm -hmm. uneven colors and stuff like that. But when you run your image through your manufacturer software you might get a, a lot less color. And this is particularly true with um, the Nikon cameras. So if you have a Nikon camera that you've converted to say 720 infrared, the standard infrared, there's not a lot of color that comes out of that at right. all. If you use the Nikon NX studio, which is their software, mm -hmm. I don't know about other cameras cause I, I don't have them. Um, but if you run that same, I, I think that generalization is true. Okay. If you run that same photo through Lightroom, the amount of color that comes out is shocking. Yeah. It, it's, and, and you can always tone that down, but it allows you to do things like blue sky effects that are almost impossible from uh, images converted with your in-camera software or your manufacturer software. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's the soapbox, but I mean, that's <laughs> where we were, but there was another thing that we were trying out for the, not for the first time, of course, but, but finally having an opportunity to test something, which was that we both got our cameras reconverted recently, right? Mm -hmm. We had previously had our cameras set to 720 nanometers, which both of us like, you know, it's, it's a look that, that can be nice for black and white, um, more subtle color stuff. But with this full spectrum option, it's now easy to have other looks just via little clipping filters that go inside the camera. Well, let's back up for a second. So we mm -hmm. both had our cameras reconverted and we used uh Kalari vision in this particular case. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a couple of providers for infrared conversions. They're one of two major ones. The unique thing about, um, and, and both and many infrared conversion services offer you a choice of wavelength, which would be a fixed wavelength. Um, at like 720 or 590 or 660 feet or whatever. These are all provide different looks, but you're generally stuck with one look when you do that way. And you have a conscious decision you have to make when you're converting a camera. But more recently, there's been a trend towards what's called full spectrum conversion in which the camera is now sensitive to both visible and infrared light. 
and the pro of that is that you can you you can use your camera in one of any any different ways uh you can convert it to infrared you can use it for visible light you can do all these things the downside of it is it requires a secondary filter you can't just use the camera as as it stands out of the out of the box with a conversion like that no nope. because it just won't work if you try to do visible it'll get contaminated with infrared and 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 if you try to do infrared it'll get contaminated with visible so you're stuck with a filter and we both held off on this approach until recently because up until about a year ago or, or or fairly recently the only way to use filters was front filters on your lens so you which is get, okay if you just use one lens yeah but you're talking about buying filters that are of a particular size and now what happens when you have 82 millimeter filters or 67 it gets messy right because you're either buying a lot of filters and that gets expensive <laughs> really fast. Yeah, because you, let's say hypothetically, you've got a need for 67 millimeter filters and 82 millimeter filters. And, you know, step up rings can be used, but they're kind of awkward, especially with lens hoods and stuff like that. And if you want to have multiple spectrums, like 590, 720, visible 30 visible whatever now you're rep replicating those filters in another way so mm -hmm. you end up with a whole bunch of fairly expensive filters like honestly for most people with a with a full spectrum kit you're probably going to get a minimum of two filters you know one or two infrared choices and possibly the visible choice which is called a hot mirror filter it blocks infrared mm -hmm. Now you got three filters, at least two, and now you got to replicate that across your all your different lens front elements. And as we've learned, manufacturers aren't being super consistent these days with with their with their filter threads. Um, some are, some aren't, and that gets to be a pain. Um, so what happened? What changed it for us was when Kalari uh, Vision started creating filters that clip in right above your sensor they they stick on inside your lens mount itself so they're rear filters they're rear mounted filters and for the nikon cameras you have to stick little magnets in there so that they can clip in with with mag the filters have magnets in them and which if is you, not a big deal and it works no well. and if you send your camera to them for that conversion and buy at least one filter from them they'll put the magnets into your sensor for or not on the sensor but into the uh the um lens mount for you and and it works um so we did this we went out and got some and um they're not um hard to use although if you're going to change them out in the field you need to make sure you've got a dust blower bulb around because yeah you're, you're yeah. exposing your your can't you know you're taking everything apart so it's a good yeah, idea yeah. to to and sit just down wanna, on a bench somewhere to do this bingo you want to ideally be able to sit down and um if you try to do them while standing, you're very likely to fling these little filters off into the right. grass or right. sand or whatever. But they're in a metal, they have a metal um, 
uh, frame around them and then they just clip in and then you put your lens back on and everything is good. And so I think you got some more than I, I did, but I mean, I have mm -hmm. a little box that has, it holds four of these filters. So I've got a 720, a 590, um, something that's interesting called IR Chrome. We'll talk about that some other time, but it's just a, a unique look, um, where it combines blue skies with red, red foliage and things like that is pretty wild. And then the hot mirror or visible filter. And so I have one in the camera and three in this little case and I can just swap them out and, and it works. Um, so we tried that. Uh, we have tried it before, but we hadn't been to a place where we could really use them on good subjects because this is not an ideal time for infrared photography here in Colorado. Right. Um, but Tucson was great. We had, and we had had some fun time in San Diego as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did a little practice run there yeah. um, before the uh, birding class that I did down there, but that was on the side. Anyway, the system works great, but there's pros and cons to it, right? The, yeah. Of the, you know, so so should you get a full spectrum conversion or not, or what? Uh, we both like it. I think I think in the context of being able to use the rear mounted filters. Yeah, and, and what I would say, you know, because I, you know, one objection could be, well, the cost could ramp up, you know, with multiple filter options and stuff like that. And that is true. However, let's say that you're someone that has been doing infrared a while and you know you like 720. You could get the full spectrum camera conversion and order just one filter, specifically the 720 mm -hmm. nanometer clip in is leave it in your camera full time. And that's a great starting point. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it gets you that same look, but down the road, maybe six months later, a year later, maybe you want some other options and you can just buy another clip and filter and get them. So you, you can start more affordably, um, than might appear on the surface. Well, right. It's going to cost you a little bit more in that the sense that you need that initial filter. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you had just a single conversion, but, but one thing um, I, I've come across is that generally quality wise, it's better to have your filter behind the lens than in front of it. Because mm -hmm. you, you solve the glare reflection, you know, filters can introduce challenges by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was reluctant to do that as well, just with front filters. I wasn't interested in doing that, not to mention just the overall expense of having to have a variety of threads, you know, filter diameters, or use step rings, which are a pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. um, so that's, that's a thing. Um, now, I think we kind of implied this, but just to state it really clearly, these clip-in filters only work for mirrorless cameras. Right. That's a good point. They, so they do not work with DSLRs and that's because they would, you know, get caught up in the mirror assembly and all sorts of stuff. So these are yeah. made just strictly that, for mirrorless cameras. That's a good point. I should bring that out. And, and I, I haven't looked at the Kalari vision website lately to see which I know they offer them for, um, I think Fuji is one. Mm -hmm. And I think that they offer them. I know they have them for Nikon and I think Canon, at least in and Sony and Sony. I don't know about Olympus yet, if that's yeah, coming. I'm not sure. Um, but, but you just have to look and see if that's available. But I think it's safe to say that we both 
like this. And and then there was a side benefit of of this, at least from my perspective. Your your perspective may vary, but in the past, I've always used a dedicated camera body for infrared. And that's a little bit annoying sometimes because it's another body to pack. Um, and, you know, depending on the size of that body, you know, how does it fit in your bag? It may or may not use the same batteries as your right. primary one. Right. You know, they're just bunch of things and and if you've been listening to the show for a while i mean my primary camera is currently the nikon z9 and it's a beast it's a huge mm -hmm. camera i love it but it's a huge camera mm -hmm. and there are times when you want to go smaller and my infrared camera was a nikon z6 in fact i purchased it uh, refurbished and saved some money that way and it's that's a great way to go you know used camera refurbished camera whatever mm -hmm. had it converted but it was still a dedicated infrared body meaning if i brought it it was a one-trick pony it was going to do infrared that was it and um now with the full spectrum conversion i can use that as a backup camera or as even a lightweight travel camera and just put the uh, hot mirror visible filter in and it's good mm -hmm. and so there are times when you want to go smaller we've talked about it a lot um the z6 is a very competent little camera um, it doesn't have some of the fancy, uh, you know, eye detection algorithms that the big, that his big brothers have, but it's a great camera mm -hmm. and for certain applications, that's all you need. Um, so to be able to have the option to get a small travel camera, or even just being able to say, I'm traveling with my Z6 and I'll bring the infrared filters and guess what? I've got infrared if I want it. Yeah. Um, I thought seriously about doing that in Hawaii. Um, yeah, I could see that because Hawaii's got things that look good in infrared, yeah. like palm trees. In, in the stuff. end, I decided that wasn't what I wanted to spend time on, but I could have had fun. Yeah, I think I think it would definitely work. Um, so it's something to consider. Um, but I think we would both say at this point that if you're thinking about converting a camera to infrared, think real hard before you convert an older DSLR to infrared mm -hmm. I, I you know i i know it's the camera you probably already have but the conversions cost about the same no matter what they're they're in the 300 ish dollar range 350 something like that's about 350 bucks um there are too many advantages of mirrorless cameras for infrared to to discount them at this point in the game and then when you add in the advantages with the full spectrum option and the clip-in filters, it becomes extremely compelling mm -hmm. in my position where what I would say is unless someone is really financially constrained to only using an older DSLR, I would say absolutely do mirrorless, absolutely do full spectrum, and then just, you know, potentially vary the size of your initial set of clip-in filters mm -hmm. depending on budget. Right. That, that would be my default answer. I mean, recently, point. I mean, nobody's looking to buy new cameras, but I, I've recently seen some refurbished sales from Nikon, for example, mm -hmm. which have the Z5 for like $800. And sure, that's $800. It's not, not inexpensive, but it's also not a $2,000 camera either. Right. One thing I would caution people on, if you are a Nikon user, 
is to not use the Z50 because I don't believe the clip-in filters work with the Z50. No. For whatever reason, they just don't. Um, there's other reasons with the Z50. It doesn't have in-body stabilization and other stuff, so it's less of an all-purpose camera. Um, and the Z50's kit lenses don't work great with infrared, at least not the wider one. There's other lenses you could use. So right. I would stay away from a Z50 as an infrared camera for, for those reasons because the clip-ins just – I don't know what the deal is with that, but they don't work. So – just a little bit different physical configuration inside the mm -hmm. lens mat area. It's not the lens mat itself. It's I think the, the black stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the um, Z five would work though. I I'm pretty sure that one would work mm -hmm. and six and sevens and those kinds of things. So if you can find one used or, or refurbished um, then you've got an option there for, for something that could be quite nice. Anyway um, we had a lot of fun with, with the infrared stuff. And, uh, I should just point out shameless self-promotion that I'm taking a small group of photographers who are interested in infrared photography to the South Dakota Badlands, June 1st through 4th. And I have spaces available on that trip if anyone's interested. And that will be less of a workshop and more of a photo safari with the intent of shooting stuff around there for infrared capture across a variety of wavelengths and we can have fun processing and do all those things so if you're interested in that check out my website for the details on how you can register registration is open through the end of march but to clarify that's not a class on this pro post-processing no, technique i'll, I'll have whatever that. people are but using it's whatever you wanted to bring and use yeah. it's, it's not going to yeah. be lots of classroom time. Um, that that's, uh, that's the distinction here. Whereas yeah. what we did was a lot of classroom time for good reason. I mean, we needed it. Mm -hmm. So, um, what else do we want to talk about today in the last little bit of time that we have? I think that's about it. Well, we were going to talk about exposure stuff. Oh, I've a little, forgotten. some tips, some tips that we've seen, from feedback, from taking people on, on trips and workshops and those kinds of things, um, which is judging proper exposure in the field and the tools that we have to do it and some pitfalls that people find themselves in. Um, traditionally, the way you review your exposure um, to see if it's correct in quote unquote correct in the field was to play back your image and, and look at one of two tools, the image histogram or something called blinky highlight blinkies mm -hmm. where, where it blinks the highlights that have clipped. And I've seen clients get very hung up on this. I've seen people get, you know, very upset that they dialed their exposure down. They're still getting blinkies, you know, and, and this was very true in Florida with, white birds and dark backgrounds and mm -hmm. stuff like that. You've probably seen that too, right, Rick? Sure. Yeah. And it's important for all of you out there to know that if you're a raw shooter, uh, the histogram and the blinkies and all these tools that you have when you're reviewing images are based on a JPEG. They're based on the JPEG exposure with the JPEG tone curve, and they're impacted by things like your in-camera style, like if it's set to landscape mode and it's vivid colors and a lot of contrast versus low contrast settings. All of those things impact what the camera tells you, your histogram 
and your your highlight clipping might look like. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that if you are, you know, the, the camera is designed for JPEGs, but you're shooting raw. And the reality is, is that you're going to be unnecessarily underexposing possibly um, because those, those highlight blinkies, the histogram clipping is extremely conservative um, because again, it's designed for JPEG shooters. And what I found, and maybe you've found similar things is that if you actually look at one of those images where the camera is telling you that the highlights are starting to clip, you know, where the histogram is starting to spike on the right edge, you may actually have a full stop of exposure of headroom. Right. And their camera isn't telling you that, um, unfortunately. <laughs> We've talked about that in the past. Yeah. So the, the actual raw histogram. So if you're shooting JPEGs, then it's a great tool. But if you're shooting raw, these these tools, you have to keep in mind that they're designed for, for JPEG shooters. So you could be unnecessarily underexposing um, it, it to, to get that if, if you're relying on those tools. Because I had some clients who were just frustrated that I'm getting, I'm clipping highlights. This is no good. I'm like, you're not really clipping highlights. Trust me. <laughs> and then, you know. Yeah. There, there are a few things that you can do to lessen that problem a little bit right you can Mm -hmm. you can set your camera to a more neutral or flat um, Mm -hmm. color profile and that will show clipping slightly closer to what you get with raw files it'll still be on the conservative side Um, the the cool thing i think if you're talking about previewing exposure in the viewfinder because you can have that show blinkies too Uh, but the same conservatism on some cameras yeah. Um, the thing I like is with the Sony's, you can use the zebras, um, which is just a different display in the viewfinder. But the most important thing, and we can talk about this some other time, is you can actually configure those so that the zebras show up more aligned with a raw exposure mm-hmm. as opposed right. to JPEG, which is, to me, the really great solution. Yeah. Uh, the standard one's very conservative. Right. And, you know, the drawback of setting your camera, uh, you know, contrast level to really low levels is things can look really flat when you're viewing them in the viewfinder. Absolutely. And, and it's I just, don't do it. No, I don't either. I mean, as a Nikon shooter, the lowest I'll generally go in camera is neutral. Um, I won't use the flat setting at all. Uh, in camera it's just it's just too too hard to tell what's going on in the frame sometimes with low contrast settings and if you have a built-in histogram in your viewfinder like a mirrorless camera might have it's knowing that hey if i'm touching the right edge of the screen the right edge of the histogram i'm fine okay. i'm that that's enough and i'm 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 still i'm still being conservative even with with the the uh, exposure set that way um the zebras i is are there any other cameras that have that besides Sony, Rick? Do you know? For still photography? Yeah, for stills. It's a video that's feature the typically. Key. Yeah, that's and that's the key thing. This works for both still and video. I, I don't I'm not sure there are. So if you've it's got a, a Sony camera, you have this choice, but 
it still defaults to JPEG kind of exposure settings. Yeah, you have to go in there and tweak it. Yeah. So that's the thing to it's know. It's easy, about. but you have to tweak it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's a lot of things like that. We could have a whole show on things that are easy, but you have to tweak it. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it doesn't come up in the defaults. If all you're doing is setting, and this goes for cameras, it goes for software, default settings don't always yield optimal results. No. And you have to tinker with them. So think that think about that for when you're out there shooting again so kind anyway like if you're like use of lightroom for infrared <laughs> if, if you're using highlight blinkies and they're just look and you just see small ones tiny little things most of the time you're going to still be safe yeah and don't you know. worry about specular highlights you know highlights oh. off of reflections and stuff like that yeah like off water or chrome yeah or just ignore them in fact i'll just put it this way in my options for playing back when I review my images, mm -hmm. I include histogram. I don't have the highlight warnings option even on anymore. Yeah. I don't even want to look at that. So yeah. I just have that turned off. So, yeah, I agree. So anyway, with that, I think we've come to the end of our, our time. Uh, we appreciate all of our listener feedback, comments, insults, whatever they might be. Well, maybe not insults, but uh, <laughs> you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash image doctors. So until next time, happy shooting. All right. Bye-bye.